Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. All right, you guys. Warm spring weather is right around the corner. I just know it. I just know it is. And breeders are starting to plan their litters for the year. So visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use the code PureDogTalk to take $20 off each Embark for Breeders dog DNA kit. The Embark for Breeders dog DNA kit tests for more than 210 genetic health conditions, highlights breed-specific results, includes more than 35 traits, these are things like coat color and body size, and it's the only DNA test to use to get your genetic COI score. Embark also provides breeders with a suite of tools in their My Embark online experience with DNA health summary reports, easy-to-download OFA submission reports, and group tags for your dog's profiles so you can sort by sire and dam, litter, health status, any tags you want to create. Find out why responsible breeders trust Embark to enhance their breeding program. Right now, you can save on the most accurate, most comprehensive dog DNA kit. Just visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use code PureDogTalk. Take $20 off each Embark for Breeders dog DNA kit in your order. That's EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use the code PureDogTalk. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves. And I know you guys have been a little bit lax and I haven't brought back all your favorite people, but today I got you. And this is the first part of a two-part episode. Amanda Kelly, yes, Fuegle Toy Manchester Terrier fame in Canada, is back to join us. And this is actually her topic idea. And I think it is amazing. We just finished the Olympics at like ended yesterday as we were recording this. And we got to talking about the idea of subjective sports and being able to look at dog shows, which are, as we all know, an incredibly subjective sport Mm -hmm. through the eyes and the lens of the subjective sports that we look at in the Olympics. So I'm so excited, Laura. I love the Olympics. I don't know if I've ever told you that before. I love them. I'm obsessed with them. We know something new every day. It doesn't matter if it's the summer, if it's the winter, although, you know, I'm Canadian, so we tend to do better in the Winter Olympics, not surprisingly, since it's winter here, like 11 and a half months of the year. Yes. (laughs) Which is why you live in Canada and I do not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. So I'm telling you guys, Amanda has four pages of notes and a literative series of topics that's going to just blow your mind. So. I do. I'm such a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why we love you here at Pure Dog Talk. And you are like Pure Dog Talk gold. So oh. <laughs> talk to us about substances 
subjectivity, sportsmanship, and my favorite, I'm waiting for this one, spine. Do tell. So, yes, I'm a nerd and I started making notes. I thought, oh, I need to talk about this. Oh, I need to talk about that. And then suddenly I had categories and (laughs) examples and themes. And so, yeah, I'm excited to talk about all of these because I think that like everything else in life, you can make connections between a lot of things and dog shows and learn lessons everywhere you go. Yes. And this is very timely. So talk to us. I think substances. Let's start with substances. That's a pretty good one. When I think of substances from a dog show point of view, I think it's maybe not a whole lot different than from an Olympic point of view. Maybe the type of substances differs, but the underlying issue is the same. So we talk a lot in the dog show world about foreign substances. Yes. And in the sports world in general, I mean, certainly this isn't just something we see at the Olympics. It just happens to be that it's that time of the year. Yes. You know, cheating and drug use always comes up. Yep. And it doesn't matter what sport it is. There is always some way to cheat. Well, people do come up with remarkably creative ways to do that, don't they? They do indeed. And, you know, it's an interesting thing because I think there's a number of different kinds of subtopics there. Well, there's a shading, right? There's the cheating from I put in an extra nudicle in my dog's scrotum because he only had one to I put some white chalk in my dog after it was muddy. Okay, so there's a range here. (laughs) There is, exactly. And so, you know, we see the same thing in the Olympics, and I think Mm -hmm. we see it reflected in the dog world as well. So there's more obvious examples. And look, I'm just going to apologize to everyone in advance. I'm Canadian, so most of my examples are Canadian. (laughs) But they're out there in the real world, too, in all the countries. That's right. And there's other countries involved. I mean, you know, they were there, too. But... (laughs) That's my example. It's my frame of reference. They were there too. They were there too. So, you know, I always think, you know, when we think about cheating in the Olympics up here in Canada, a hundred percent, the first example that comes to mind is Ben Johnson and the big Mm. Ben Johnson scandal of 1988. Now, I don't want to date myself, but I will. I was 10 in 1988. And I remember very vividly when he won the gold medal, mm-hmm. how excited everyone was, you know, like Canadians don't win diddly squat usually at the summer Olympics. So to win the hundred meter sprint yes, was a huge deal. And he was an amazing sprinter. Absolutely. And I think he beat Carl Lewis. I mean, yeah. Carl Lewis was an incredible athlete mm-hmm. and they had a huge rivalry. So, you know, it was big news. And then the absolute, I don't know, heartbreak, embarrassment, scandal that followed when it was discovered that he had been taking anabolic steroids. It was a formative event in Canadian sport, certainly. And I think probably at the time in track and field in general. Yes. Yeah. Then on the other end of that, so there's a pretty obvious example of cheating. And then you have this sort of shading idea. So not that many years ago, I want to say it was back around 2012, there was a lot of concern and angst around swimsuits. Yes. You know, 
swimsuits that were being worn by, I want to say it was the Australian swim team, although it became a larger issue. They had these full body shark swim suits made with lots of technology and Mm -hmm. things that I read about on Wikipedia and did not understand. But you don't need to understand the technical side of it. All you need to know is that people wearing these full body high tech suits in the few years that they were allowed broke 40, 40, 40 world and Olympic records. Wow. Now I did not know that. And so the suits have been banned and reinstated and banned and reinstated multiple times. I believe for London and for Beijing, they were not allowed. They had to use the older textile mm-hmm. suits. But the records that were broken by people wearing those suits still stand. Right. So it's an interesting thing. So is it cheating? Is it not cheating? You know, where is the line between making changes like shaving every piece of hair off your entire body to putting on a suit that potentially makes you faster? Where is the line there? And it applies in dogs because we look at, for example, grooming styles and the grooming styles that make, say, a poodle fancier today than it was 30 years ago. And how do those win records, the ability to go places that you couldn't get to? You know, I watched Tim Brazier. I was at the dog show when Tim Brazier showed at the dog show I was at one day, flew to another dog show the next day, lost the breed and flew back to the dog show I was at and won the breed in the same day. Exactly. So it's always an interesting thing when you kind of can take yourself out of something you know, we take ourselves away from the dog show world and we look at an example in another context Mm -hmm. and then come back and reapply it. Mm -hmm. You know, what a different perspective that you can get. What I think of when I look at this whole idea of substances and cheating and at the Olympics, and then I turn from that and I look at the dog world, I think I see maybe from a more bird's eye view, the scale And how we've normalized things that are on one end of the scale. Right. You know, so for example, I don't think any of us, I mean, I certainly have never, you know, would blink at chalking a dog. Right. Putting hairspray in its hair. Mm -hmm. Any one of a number of things. A little bit of chalk to cover up that scar or. That's right. Or a little white bit on its nail or. A nose kit to Mm -hmm. darken in a nose here or there. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, maybe a little bit of eyeliner to darken mm-hmm. in an eye ram or what about a hair switch in a poodle? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, these are things that I think that we have normalized. The other end of the scale? No. Although I wonder to myself, the more that we push from one side, do the more extreme things on the other end seem less extreme? Well, in this instance, I think of things like fixing tails. Mm-hmm. fixing ears, those sorts of things. Nudicles, people laugh. It's been done. I am aware of an instance in which it was done in a breed that I am associated with. Mm-hmm. Braces on teeth? Oh, braces on teeth is practically de rigueur in some breeds. Mm-hmm. So I think that all of us will in a conversation say, you know, there are things that are absolutely wrong. 
mm-hmm. and lines that we absolutely will not cross. Mm-hmm. I will say that never is a really long time. <laughs> and the things that you think that you'll never do one day may be things that you'll consider. Yep. And so, you know, having that conversation with yourself early on and then sticking with it is important. And it's hard. It can be very difficult. And I think what we can do here in this conversation is just put it in front of people that everybody's going to have their own line. The AKC has a line that has been ignored for as long as I've been in dogs. And that's not an insignificant period of time. I am older than you, just so you know. (laughs) You weren't 10 in 1988? (laughs) I was not 10 in 1988. No, no, I was not. I, I think I was 20. So I'm <laughs> but I think that the point that I'm making here is that I really think it's important to look at the whole scheme of things to appreciate, as you say, what has become sort of accepted in other organizations. Say, for example, in the US, UKC, they really do ban all forms. I mean, and they mean it. Well, and it's the same in Europe. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you go to Europe. Mm-hmm. You don't spray your poodle up. I mean, right. I'm not saying that it hasn't been done. I'm not saying that I haven't stood in front of a poodle being sprayed up <laughs> at an international show. But, you know, it's not the same thing as here. It's just okay. not. It's very different. And it's very much a different culture, I think. Yes. And I mean, to the point that I can remember watching, this was, again, not that long ago. This was within the last 15 years, watching Maxine Beam judge poodles at a dog show and everybody taking all of their product out and all of their hair pieces out showing their dogs and then the person who won the breed frantically attempting to put their poodle back together before they took it to the group to show it to somebody else well and it's so interesting to me you know i find poodles to be fascinating so they're a fabulous breed they are a great breed i had a standard poodle for a while wonderful wonderful dog I was forced even to go in the ring and show her, which to everyone's great delight and entertainment. You know, I respect them so much as an athletic dog. And I find myself as a dog person torn between appreciating a poodly poodle. Yes. And also wanting them to be the athlete they were born to be. Well, I love the new and recently embraced modified continental clip Mm -hmm. that many dogs are being shown in. I mean, perhaps it's not your number one dogs, but dogs are being shown and finished in a mod con that I think is very handsome. And, you know, the poodle people that I know well, and I'm not sure that I entirely disagree with them, frankly, will tell you that there's not enough wiggies in the world to make a bad poodle into a good poodle. True story. That structure is structure. Well, fair, but I'm going to have to call a little bit of bull on that (laughs) because coming from a naked breed, the things that you can do when you have coat just are so incredible. I mean, a really, really good groomer can do some pretty incredible things. No disagreement on that whatsoever. And we've all seen the magic of grooming. I was commenting on it to a friend this weekend in a breed that is not trimmed. And the trimming that had been done was so artistic 
that unless you actually really knew what you were looking at, you wouldn't necessarily identify it as such. That's right. And that, Laura, is an excellent segue yes. into my number two theme, which yes. is subjectivity. Yes. Did you see the, how smooth that was? That was Woo! so, it's why we make an amazing team. Just saying, can we take this on the road? I'm saying. <laughs> Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. Pure Dog Talk is proudly sponsored by Trupanion, medical insurance for the life of your pet. Trupanion cares passionately about pets and makes sure their policy has what it takes to serve you and your furry companions. In fact, they are the first pet insurance provider to cover certain health conditions associated with breeding animals through their specialized breeding rider. Their industry-leading coverage does not stop there. Trupanion's free breeder support program also allows you to send your litters home protected with an offer for a Trupanion policy. Learn more about all of the perks that Trupanion offers breeders by following the link on my partner page at puredogtalk.com. You know, in my research for our conversation, because I do genuinely, I do want to have really well-informed conversations. They can be fun and well-informed. It's allowed. That's right. That's right. So in my research, I read a stat. I can't really source it, but I do believe it. There were changes made after the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City to the figure skating judging approach. And we're going to talk about that in a second. Yep. Because now we are into subjective sports and there is nothing more subjective than dog shows unless it's Olympic figure skating. That is correct. One of the things that I read was that in the aftermath of having changed their judging system, what they observed was that in the elements of scoring that had a subjective element, so a more subjective element, say, you know, the artistic aspects, Mm. There was an observer bias that they noted and could replicate across many competitions that indicated that that observer bias determines about 20% of the mark given by a judge for Hmm. a particular element. And so they were able to kind of deal with that a little bit by having many judges. So in a competition, Mm -hmm. you might have nine or 10 judges. And so across all of those judges, that observer bias would be somewhat ironed out. But what happens when there's only one judge? Right. I mean, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing if we transfer that. And I'm not saying that we can, but it seems to me that it wouldn't be a whole lot different in most subjective sports. If we accept at face value, that 20% of a judge's decision relies on just their own personal bias. And be careful here. Let's explain to people, Amanda, bias isn't bias against an individual or against an individual dog. So please do wrap that with some language. Yeah, no, and you're right. That's a really good point, Laura. This isn't my bias that, you know, I like such and such a person or I like such and such a dog. It might be a bias, like an unconscious bias that I like black poodles more than I like white poodles, or Mm -hmm. I like this trim more than that trim, Mm -hmm. or I like a dog presented in a certain way. Or I prefer this particular head style or, you know, 
those sorts of things. Or heads are more important to me than legs or vice versa. That's right. Like that. So I'm interested to know, Laura, would you think that in a dog show that biases like that are more than 20% or less than 20% or the same? Honestly, I would think they're pretty similar. I think that's a really fair number because it does account for the, you know, I personally look at a sporting dog and it has to have good legs. Or then I take that and I go to a toy dog and I still want it to have good legs, even though, frankly, nobody else cares. Right. So that type of, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) that type of where you come from. And I think it's very interesting and very applicable because it does a couple things. It talks about why we care as professional handlers or as seasoned owner handlers about what breed does someone come from? Mm -hmm. Because I will assure you that if someone comes from, say, for example, bulldogs, they're going to, as a natural inclination of their training and emphasis, be much more interested in head details than they are in particular type of gait in a different breed. Yeah. You know, I thought about this before we started our conversation. I posed that same question to myself. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it might be more in dogs. And Interesting. this is why. Okay. I think that there's a bias that is implicit for the judge when they're standing in the middle of the ring and they're making a choice. Mm-hmm. But I also think that there's a bias And maybe bias isn't the right word, but there's a challenge that is implicit to the judging criteria. So when you're judging figure skating, there's a very clear explanation of what a correct triple toe loop is. And there's a little bit of leeway, but it's not so huge most people would have a similar understanding of what a triple toe loop is supposed to look like. I am not one of those people. Me neither. (laughs) Not even sure what you're, you just started talking Greek to me. Would you not then compare that to a breed standard? Well, and that's exactly what I'm thinking. So when we ask a judge to interpret words like slightly. Yes. Or moderately. Yes. Where is the clarity as a reference for them? To me, it's a compounding issue because we're asking them to interpret things that we don't always equip them to do. And on top of that, we also have their own personal bias that comes into play. So, well, I think that's actually a really good point. Say we'll use a couple of breeds that I'm familiar with. Both the Vishla and the English Setter use moderate a ridiculous number of times in their standard. Mm-hmm. Those two dogs are not much alike in that particular word. So a moderate English setter is very different than a moderate Vishla, for example. Well, and even when we're using clear words, it's not even necessarily clear, right? So mm-hmm. if I say to you, the head should be long and wedge-shaped. Yes. Okay, well, how long is long? And how wedgy is wedgy? Like, is it a wedge like a wedge of cheese or a wedge like a slice of diet pizza? <laughs> or like the kind of wedge that you put under something to lift it up. That's right. right. Whole different thing. And I think some of this goes to the cleverness of the judge and their willingness to dig and to read more than words on a paper. 
read the actual, like really learn each of the breeds that they judge, which is difficult. Trust me, <laughs> speaking as someone who's going through this process, far more difficult than you realize. Right. So that's a piece of it. It goes to each of the standards because the standards are not standard one to another. The mm-hmm. Greyhound standard and the Spinonia Italiano standard are lifetimes apart. Right. For example. So I also think that the older standards that have been left as they were, such as the Greyhound standard, as they were basically originally written, and standards of newer breeds or standards that are more updated, mm-hmm. the language is different. They've taken into account the fact that not everyone comes from the same place in understanding these things right? and tried to be more specific. And then you run into breeds that are like, this is this long exactly number of inches, and this is that long exactly number of inches, and this is exactly this number of percentage of whatever, and your eyes start crossing. It's such a difficult situation because you're really talking about two extremes, like being not descriptive enough versus being too descriptive. And unlike figure skating or gymnastics or, you know, whatever else we might be judging, we're not judging 15 skills that we have to learn how to judge really, really well. You know, we've got judges who need to be able to judge hundreds of breeds. Yes. And so obviously it's a bit of apples to oranges as far as comparing the systems, but it's still subjectivity. It is subject to one's opinion. And I think what comes to my mind as you're talking about the one judge versus multiple judges Mm -hmm. and how we in dogs perceive that Think of our really big events, things like a top 20, some of these sorts of events where we recognize that there may be individual bias and we bring in three judges Mm -hmm. and we average their scores. And as happens, not every single time, but many, many times, your best of breed winner and your top 20 winner are not necessarily the same dog. Well, you know, we used to have shows up here, and I know you had them in the States as well, that were judged kind of in these panels. Mm -hmm. And I remember listening to a judge, and for the life of me, I couldn't tell you who it was, but it doesn't matter. I remember listening to a judge who said, you know, the worst part about panels is that they lend themselves to the most mediocre dog winning. Yes. The, The dog who gets the highest average score is not necessarily the dog that should win. Maybe it's the most middle of the road dog. So it's an interesting problem in that no matter what system you adopt, there's some sort of challenge inherent to it. Exactly so. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I have lots of experience with, with the wire hair printer, we have a thing called the all-star invitational that is Mm -hmm. only for top titled field and show dogs. So the dual champions, champion amateur field champions, this sort of thing. And the judges are presented with the standard and there are points attributed to each chunk of the standard. Mm -hmm. And I find that it does having both judged it and watched a lot of, lot of other people judge it. It sharpens the mind and makes you think about how do I attribute 25 points to this dog and their coat, and then another 25 points to this dog and their gait and another, right? And mm-hmm. so that that type of process, when it's done in the top 20s or in these sorts of panels, takes a little bit away from your common denominator, your mediocrity challenge. Yeah, 
I actually would like to see more of a mix. Mm-hmm. And I know, look, paneled judging affairs are not really a realistic way of having dog shows. We're dealing with a lot of volume. Yes. And it would be very expensive and unwieldy and difficult to do things that way. But I just feel like, you know, maybe there's room for that somewhere because it can't be completely without merit. If you consider that every subjective sport at the Olympics is judged by a panel. Exactly. There are no sports that are judged by one single individual. It doesn't matter if you're talking about gymnastics or synchronized swimming or diving or snowboarding, you know, they're all judged by panels. And I'm not saying that we should change our system completely, but I think that it's worth taking a moment to just stop and think about why. Think about it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people talk about critiques, that critiques are a thing. And it brings to mind the IABCA shows that we have down here in the States, the international format. Mm -hmm where they have each judge writes a little critique for each dog and it takes forever. And that I don't see sadly ever being incorporated into an American Kennel Club show or even a CKC show. But I do like what they have at the end. They have two judges judge best in show. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be an interesting, again, having just done this and participated in it, it was very interesting having the conversation with the other judge in the ring. In this case, it was a judge who was much senior to me. And her insight on some of the things that she saw and some of the things I saw in our conversation, that was actually really, really interesting. And actually, I will say the Halifax Kennel Club here in Nova Scotia has had shows with critiques, usually just like one day of the weekend. Interesting. Which is really an interesting, kind of innovative, different thing to Mm -hmm. do. And Mm -hmm. so hats off to that club for thinking outside of the box. But having shown at shows in Europe where they're kind of the thing, I think that critiques are only really as good as the person who's writing them. Correct. (laughs) I've gotten critiques that didn't say a whole lot more than, yes, this is a dog. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) he's super pretty. He has four legs and two ears. Congratulations. Yep. And then others that actually contained information that I thought was interesting observations that made me go, hmm, well, that's interesting. Right. So, you know, it's like anything else. But yes, I agree. I think critiques are an interesting part of this puzzle as well. That's interesting that you did it for a day. That would be kind of a fun, you know, as clubs are thinking about how can I draw in people and everybody's always saying they want critiques. What if you added a non- regular judging day and it was limited entry and you did critiques. Mm -hmm. I like that plan. All right, Cruz. Thank you all for joining us. This has been part one of our episode. Watch this space. Part two will be coming up soon. You guys, I am so excited. I've been wanting to create a live call-in show forever. So finally, I decided to just do it. (laughs) Dog shows, dog grooming, dog handling, dog breeding, you name it. Join the conversation live and get trusted answers to all of your questions. No more Facebook groups, no more 
20,000 answers to the same question. Just solid knowledge. Amazing. Start planning now. Visit the Pure Dog Talk Facebook page for a link to our YouTube Live Lightning Round with Laura. Be on the lookout for live chat opportunities, special guests, they'll be a secret, live calls from the audience, and more. Let's kick off the new year in pure dog talk style. Like the NPR of dogdom, pure dog talk is here for you to make sense out of everyday things, to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box. To bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show Superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers Desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.